following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Know this, that in the last days, so that's now, we talked about it last week, we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. So now, times are hard. You see, the world will be filled with narcissistic, money-grubbing, pretentious, arrogant, and abusive people. They will rebel against their parents and will be ungrateful, unholy, uncaring, cold-hearted, accusing, without restraint, savage, and haters of anything good. Expect them to be treacherous, reckless, swollen with self-importance, and given to loving pleasure more than they love God. Even though they may look or act like godly people, they're not. They have the outward form and the look of godliness, but by their lives they deny God's power. I tell you, stay away from the likes of these and keep them away from your people. It's a, it's a daunting couple of paragraphs. Scott was reminding me this morning that this was Paul's last letter as far as we know. He was getting close to his death and uh, he doesn't hold, doesn't hold back. He just kind of says it like it is to Timothy. So last week, uh, I, in my creative brilliance, put two trees up here on the stage and the roots are boxes that we kind of talked about. Well, if you can envision these boxes as roots going into the ground, work with me. This is kind of the foundational thing that forms people. And then out of that formation, out of that foundation, there is some kind of fruit that will come from the tree of our life. There were not words in the trees last week. This is what we're going to cover today as we talk about fruit. So on the one hand, we have people who Paul says they love themselves, they love money, they love pleasure. Their foundation and the thing which brings fruit in their life is all about themselves. On the other hand, he said you have people who they love God, they love truth. They actually love what repentance does, this whole path of surrendering and letting God be Lord in their life. And one of these sides, and it was this side, they have a form of godliness. So even though the roots are bad and the fruit that's going to come out is bad, it can look good. In fact, if you look at these two trees, I bought them from the same place. They're in essence the exact same tree. In some ways they have the same form. They have a form of godliness, but they don't have the power. They don't have the beauty that comes from it. They don't have the good fruit, but depending how you see them, it could look really good. On the other hand, you have people, they also have the form of godliness because the path of righteousness is a thing, but there's a power to them, which is why I plugged in the tree this week, which makes it look like early Christmas mixed with Thanksgiving at the bottom. My, I was limited in the types of things I could find. Uh, so once again, uh, work with me here on my, uh, my imagery for this. I would... Summarize it this way, the spirit of God and the path of God, they give us transformative power to mature in Christ and represent God well as ambassadors. So we have a form of godliness that's simply uh, listening to the law of God, walking in the path of righteousness as, as a form of surrender and allegiance and obedience. But we also then have the Holy Spirit inside of us that gives us this supernatural power that we don't have, that God gives to us so that we're able to do this. So we're going to start talking about fruit this week. And even though Paul only lists what you see here on your right, my left, he's talking about what you're going to see in these false teachers who only have the form. I think what Paul is also doing is, by implication, offering a contrast 
This is the kind of thing that will destroy your people and tear apart your church. This is the kind of thing that will build your people and will build your church. So while I want to go through carefully what Paul is saying in each of these words about what kind of people to watch out for, I want to end with talking about uh, a vision of church surrender to Christ and what it looks like for us to do life together the way God intends. And as we go through this list, I discovered something pretty quickly. Uh, I'm going through this side of things where like, yeah, that's bad. And I kept having everybody other than myself pop into my mind as I'm reading through this warning. So I want to encourage you with a verse from David. This is Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my mind. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me into life everlasting. So as we go through this, I, I think it's going to be easy to go, man, I hope so-and-so is hearing this sermon. I'm going to encourage you with the same thing I encouraged myself. Um, let yourself hear this sermon, but let God worry about who else gets to hear it. All right, first word that Paul uses is proud or boastful. Once again, depending on your translation, you might have slightly different words, but this is the idea. Here's how Helps Word Studies describes this. It's boasting to anyone who is foolish enough to take him seriously. This kind of person claims many things he can't really do, so he must always keep moving on to new and naive listeners. So this word in particular is not someone who's full of themselves over what they have accomplished. This is someone who's full of themselves over what they haven't accomplished. I mean, it's a step worse. It's bad enough to be around someone who can't stop talking about what they've done. It's quite another thing to be around someone who hasn't, hasn't actually done these things. They make them up, and then they brag about them. And it starts, I think, with small exaggerations, but it moves further and further, and it kind of gains its own momentum. So I was wondering this week, what would it look like for someone in the church to boast about things that didn't really happen? Two stories kind of out there came to mind, and then we'll bring it home. One is this. Uh, I once heard a preacher say that God had called him to ministry and that God was so desperate to have him in ministry that God didn't have time to wait for him to mature. So God supernaturally gave him 10 years worth of maturity in the moment so that he could start ministering. R right. Wouldn't that be nice if it worked that way? Uh, that, that's not what happened, and it honestly didn't take long to see the fruit and realize, oh, no, you did not get 10 years' worth of maturity given to you. And, in fact, this particular person had to move on, like the definition says here. He had to, he had to keep moving on to new, naive listeners because the longer he would stay in one place, people would get to know him. And they began to realize, no, this was a proud, boastful claim of something that never happened, and there's no impact whatsoever in your life. Um, I, I know of another person with really excellent credentials and really incredible connections around the world. And then we come to find out, actually, he embellished those credentials from day one. And he wasn't actually who he said he was. And for years, he'd been building up kind of an image of himself that wasn't true. And then that calls into question, I wonder then if you did all the things that you said you did and actually had all the conversations you said you had because there's this undermining of truth early on. But for myself, I've been trying to think about what it looks like for me because I, I would like to think I'm not the kind of guy who exaggerates. 
um, and then kind of brags about it. That really sounds terrible, but I think it's this. It's maybe claiming a devotional life or a prayer life that we don't have. Someone else is like, I do devotions like this. You're like, yeah, me too. And we know in our mind they're taking away an impression that is not true, but it seems really important to us in the moment to really look good in the conversation. Uh, maybe it's exaggerating our generosity, um, kind of embellishing what we've given in terms of time or money or resources. Uh, maybe it's saying to someone, oh, I've been praying for you, and we know we haven't. We just feel bad that we haven't, so we embellish it in the moment. It might even be something like this, saying, listen, I believe in a biblical view of sex and of marriage in the family. And then we fail to honor covenant. It turns out we don't actually value these things biblically the way that we said. We're, we're watching porn. We're letting our relationship with our spouse or our kids kind of fall apart. We're failing to steward our family. Uh, we're walking away from the conflict necessary to build relationship rather than walking into it. And so everybody around us, as far as they know, they've heard us say, I value all these things, but the reality is the step-by-step -step, uh, focus in our life shows that that's not actually true. I think that's what Paul's talking about here, being proud or po boastful. Um, we claim things we're not doing. And this is rotten fruit because it comes from a rotten root. It has to do with selfishness. And it might end up with huge lies, but it's going to start with the small things, the small compromises of truth that come from a failure to speak honestly about life or about ourselves. And you're actually going to see with the other things we go through this morning, in some ways this might just be Paul going, this is the first step, because you're going to kind of see them escalate now as we go into the next things. The next one then is someone who is arrogant or haughty. The word here literally means super shiny. They're the people who contemptuously look down on others beneath them, either in social position or wealth, that could be boasting, or perhaps in natural gifts. This could be people who are proud. That was from someone named Ellicott's commentary. He's making a small distinction. But the idea here is simply that there's an internal kind of stance where I look around at everybody around me and I have to find a way to think of them as less than me in some fashion. So I'm, I'm gonna end up gauging their dignity, their worth by really shallow and probably cultural things. Um, it could be the clothes they wear. It could be the kind of house they live in. Maybe it's the job they have or how attractive I think they are. In the church, I would assume it would look something like someone has different spiritual gifts and so you kind of downplay them in your own mind because you need whatever yours is to look a little bit better. It could be that someone has a position in the church, a particular position, or maybe they're doing like full-time ministry, even though we're all full-time ministers, right? Um, they're doing full-time ministry and someone else isn't. It could be that we know someone has a lot of, maybe, maybe we have a lot of money and we can be generous so we can kind of look down on people who can't help. Um, there's all kinds of ways in which it's possible for us to do this. So this idea of hyper shiny people, I think it's just the idea that we need to believe that everyone's looking at us and thinking about us and admiring us. And if I understand from the discussion of the original language here, the process is once again, it begins with something inside where I look at everyone around me and I have to find a way to diminish them a little bit so that I can rise in my own eyes. Keep in mind, that doesn't mean it's reality. 
right? It's a lie I'm telling myself. I have to, they must decrease so I can increase. And I think it's inevitable that that's going to leak out in, then to what we say and how we act to others. Because if we're thinking, I, I would have said that better. I would have done that better. I would have been smarter in that. Uh, I am clearly the smartest person in the room. If that's, the, if that's where we're landing, that's going to come out. There's no way that that stays inside. And it begins to sneak into conversations. Uh, yeah, I like so-and-so, but they could have done that better. They could have said that better. And, and maybe they could. Now, hear me carefully on this. There is a difference between using discernment to see what a life of wisdom looks like and what a life of holiness looks like. But, it, but it's a very different thing. You can offer those same things with a bitter heart. And the way I think I would phrase that is we can critique things around us. Let me make it personal. I can critique things around us for my good and my glory, or I can critique things around me for your good and for God's glory. Does the distinction kind of make sense? If I'm looking around at other people and seeing faults and failures, that's not an opportunity for me to feel super good and push myself to the front. It's an offer, that's an opportunity for me to serve. And then when there's people around me who I can't find fault with, uh, I have to embellish myself and I have to make things up to push them down. That's the idea of being arrogant and haughty. We have to establish ourselves as smarter or more competent or more qualified. All right, so we had proud and boastful, kind of embellishing ourselves in our own mind. I think that's probably building into nobody's as good as me, and we find ways to make sure that's clear to everybody around us so we can shine. And then the next word is abusive. So helps word studies describes this as revilers or railers or even blasphemers. And then says what they do is they reverse spiritual and moral realities. I think the summary of that is these are the kind of people the Bible says they call good evil and they call evil good. They twist everything around. So we've already established they don't love truth. <laughs> They're not interested in seeing the world or seeing themselves honestly. They don't pursue truth. They become jaded over time and they don't recognize truth. They're certainly not going to pass it on. So let's not limit this to biblical teaching for a second. Let's, let's broaden it. This would be someone who reverses reality about everybody around them. And so they make comments about their character, their talents, their comp competency, their likability. Uh, maybe you've had the unfortunate experience of being raised in a family where you would get a message over and over that says, you're just not good enough. You're never going to succeed. You're, and it's all these little cutting things that chip away at you. They're not true. It's, it's abusive language. It's emotionally and mentally abusive. It, and it's going to actually twist reality because after a while we start to believe the lie if we hear it enough times from other people. So these abusive people, they live to lie. They want everyone around them to question reality so that they apparently are the only stable thing left standing. This, I think, is the damage of people who are abusive with the truth. Eventually, because you're undermining reality over and over again, you're calling good evil, evil good, you are reversing spiritual moral realities, you're messing with people's minds. 
And eventually, they are so confused, it ends up they probably come back to you as the only person who apparently knows what's going on because they look around the world and it doesn't make any sense, but you've, you've been giving them this message over and over and over. This is reality. You've twisted it and distorted it, and they come back to you to be the stable thing. I wonder if this is what Paul is referring to last week. We read the verses about certain people in the church who were being led astray. He said they were silly. They were endlessly pursuing the truth and never finding the truth right because the people giving them truth were abusive with the truth and completely turned reality around and so confused them they didn't know where to turn and kept going back to them and that builds its own momentum. There's a commentary called the Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges. They had some really exceptional things on 2 Timothy. Here's their summary of these three things which they kind of group as a similar triad. Boastfulness or pride is an endeavor to pass for a man of greater consequence than one really is. Haughtiness or arrogance is contempt for everyone but yourself. The climax is the, the railers or the abusive. It's a spirit of vain glory in themselves. It's an arrogant treatment of others. And then it's the actual abuse and reviling of others. The first word, the proud, describes someone who sins against truth. The second describes someone who sins against love. And the third sins against both. And one of the words there for abusive is blasphemy. Why blasphemy? Because abusive people, people abusive with the truth like this, they are undermining the image of God. They are attacking children of God. They're defacing the temple of God. There's all this language in the Bible. They are coming against God. And, and that's the heart of blasphemy, is that you challenge God. And when you mess with the image or the temple or the children of the king, you mess with the king. So once again, Paul doesn't mess around. This kind of person in your church is going to be dangerous. The second triad that's over on this tree begins with being treacherous or traitors. And this seems to be specifically of other Christians. It doesn't mean traitors to their king or country, but generally it's betrayers of the persons who trust in them and of the cause of the trust committed to them, perhaps especially of their brethren in times of persecution. Uh, Paul mentioned some people in this book who had deserted him, and I wonder if he's thinking of them when he writes this. They just, they weren't loyal. The going got tough, and they left. In fact, most of the commentary I read, the early church fathers talked over and over about Christians leaving other Christians in the midst of persecution, refusing to stay and be strong with them and to support them. But why would the kind of person we've already established, why would they stay? Right? They think they're better than everyone else, so um, it's going to be their agenda. It's going to be their comfort that's going to guide them. They've already been abusive to others. <laughs> they already think poorly of them. Maybe by this point they're thinking, well, they brought it on themselves. It's their fault. I don't really like those kind of people either. I mean, why would they defend those kind of losers? They're after their own self and their own pleasure. And so they don't stick around. In fact, I mean, why would they? They want to go find someone else who is maybe worthy of their company <laughs> because they've been so much better than the people around them for so long. The irony of that, of course, is when they get to the new company, what will they find out? Those people are also beneath them, and they'll have to keep moving on. But we establish that with the first word. They keep going on and on and on to new places. 
And then Paul says they're reckless. This is probably better rendered headstrong in your words, your thoughts, your actions. It's rash. It's being obstinate, not being influenced by wise advice. It's a person who acts from impulse without considering consequences and without weighing principles. So I think this makes sense. I mean, treacherous people aren't really known for their good common sense, right? Why would you take advice from anybody else if you're better than everybody else? If you're surrounded by losers, you're only going to get loser advice. So as long as you think that everybody around you is to some degree beneath you, of course nobody's words are going to have influence. Uh, why would you control your impulses if your impulses are the best one in the room? Why would any principle of substance matter if your motto is, I need to take care of myself, I need to get my money, I need to have my pleasure and my comfort? I think by this point, these people have reversed reality so many times that they've lost touch with reality, which means they've lost touch with consequences, which means they've lost touch with principles. If they're thinking about them at all, it's going to be leading them in a direction that is false because they have so distorted the truth. I think, of course, you're going to be reckless. And the next thing he says is self-important as part of this second triad. High-minded is another word, blinded by or inflated by pride. So one of the images that goes with this is being smoke-blind. If you build a campfire this last summer, you know what smoke-blind is. Uh, there was one night this last summer, Carl and Kim were at our house, and I built a really sketchy campfire. And everywhere Carl went, the smoke was sure to go, like Mary and the Little Lamb. And Carl spent like 45 minutes just circling our campfire, eyes watering, looked like he was crying. So I tried to say really moving things just so he didn't feel uncomfortable. That's the idea. By this point, with all the other things we put in place, you have someone now who is so blinded by error, by falsehood, they just can't see what's happening around them. And so there's a almost complete distortion of God, of the world, of others, and of self. You've embraced the lie, and now you can't see your way out of it. Uh, the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges, once again, summarizes this way. The traitors, the heady, and the high-minded. The last triad, again, is kind of a descending triad of false people who are full of conceit. The spirit of one who has this kind of heart betrays old friends, rushes headlong into new faiths, and remains to the end impenetrably, you try to say it, wrapped in clouds of self-esteem. I mean, they're just, they're hard and cold and blinded now. Slowly over time, this wasn't something that happened in one day. It was this series of small steps that takes you from here to here. And that's the bad root from the bad fruit. So I, I just want to say this before we move on to the good news. If you recognize yourself in any of these things, and I'll be honest, I recognized myself in some of these things, and it bothers me. What that means is there's a, I have a root problem. And if you recognize yourself in this, you have a root problem. There's something there. If we go back to what Paul established, there's something going on down in the roots. There's somewhere where my sense of self, my, my love, my selfish love for myself, um, my love of pleasure. I think money is a broad way of saying things. There's something going on down there that is bringing me that kind of fruit. And if I want to address that kind of fruit, I'm going to have to address the root. 
I mean, I can pick bad fruit all day, but it's just going to come back if I don't change what the rootedness is. Okay, so that's the bad fruit. By the way, we've got another week or two of bad fruit. This is going to be a good month. Um, but we're also going to have another week or two of the good fruit, right? So good roots bring good fruit by implication of what ta- Paul's talking about. It's going to be the opposite. So this list I have is not a list that Paul wrote in this book. This is me trying to find equivalent words in Scripture that present the opposite of what you see going on here. Scott, once again, I was telling him about this this morning. He said, it reminds me of Paul writing to Titus where he talks about adorning the gospel. That, yeah, you present the gospel and it's good and perfect and beautiful, but then really the fruits of our lives adorn the gospel. It makes it, 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 makes it even more beautiful when you see what it brings. So the gospel doesn't need it to have power, but it adds a beauty to it. So that's what I'm trying to do here with the lights and the decorations. It's just this uh, adorning the gospel with the beauty of good fruit. All right, so first of all, let's contrast pride to humility. Three verses quickly. 1 Peter 5, 5, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. James three thirteen, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Proverbs 16, 19, better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. And when the, when the Israelites were oppressed, they were slaves. Proverbs says, better to be humble with slaves than to share plunder with the proud. So humility shows wisdom and understanding. So to contrast to the pride, the pride was... Um, almost making things up about ourselves so we could feel better about ourselves. This humility then as a contrast is having wisdom and understanding. I know who I am. I know who I am. I can be honest about what I do and I don't do. So someone says, man, I'm getting up at five o'clock every morning and praying for three hours. I can go, I'm not. I don't have to go. I'm right behind you like 515, 538, right? I mean, you know, you know we can slide there. You know we can. Did it once last October. I'm with you, bro. I'm tracking, right? We can get rid of that need to make things up and embellish something about ourselves and be able to go, you do that? That's awesome. I really struggle to do that. And then, and then we can go on to talk about who we are. We don't have to embellish anything. Someone says, I've been really sick. Thank you for praying for me. Uh, okay, I'm going to start now. <laughs> we can be honest. Right? And it's those little things. I'm convinced it's those little things that if we're not careful, we make those little compromises. So I, let's go back to my dieting story. I'm finding how easy this is this week. Like I'm counting my calories. I, I've done a relatively decent, okay, wait. Let me make sure. I've, uh, I, have, I have done a relatively decent job, not a perfect job. My small group had pie the other night or cake or something. And then yesterday I was really hungry. Um, But what I have found, it's easy for me to go, I just have three chips now. It's just three chips. Don't have to count those calories. Or I'll give myself a serving and go, that was a cup of mashed potatoes. Let me tell you, it was a heaping cup of mashed potatoes. All right, so it's easy to just in those little things embellish my life such that I look better, I feel better about myself with no cause. (laughs) And then I can come here and tell you really good stories about myself that aren't entirely true. Right? And then you're all like, ooh, good job. I'm trying to be honest with you. I'm just saying it would be easy for me to do that. You wouldn't know. 
but it would be a pattern that I've started in my life, right? So that's the first thing. I think it's a humility that has to do with truth about ourselves, about life, about the world. The second thing then to contrast arrogance, arrogance now is the one where you're demeaning everybody around you first internally and then it leaks out. I think the opposite of that will be honor, Honor everyone, we read in 1 Peter 2.17, above yourselves, adds the author of Romans. 1 Corinthians 12.24-25 says, God has put the body, that's the church, together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other, at the beginning of that, equal honor for each other. There's no honor intended to be lacking in the church. And the people of God, we show equal honor and concern for each other. Philippians 2, 3, don't do anything from selfish ambition or from a cheap desire to boast. That actually takes us back to the pride one. But be humble toward one another, always considering others better than yourselves. By the way, that doesn't mean I have to shame myself and be dishonest about who I am and constantly go, wow, I'm really terrible. You're so amazing. That's not what it's talking about. Esteeming others better than yourselves has to do with this idea of honor. I want to honor people around me. So arrogance looks down at others. In fact, arrogance pushes others down so that we can falsely elevate our sense of who we are and our importance. But honor looks up to others. And in fact, honor lifts others up. What a contrast. An arrogant person is going to a walk into a room and internally and then outwardly slowly push everybody around them down at least a little bit so that they can by default rise. But a person of honor is going to walk into a room and they're going to slowly lift everyone around them up even if that means they're kind of losing that glitteriness, right? Our third category was abuse, which in many ways is abusive lies about the nature of reality. I'm gonna contrast this. I have to use two words, both gentleness and truth. I couldn't find a word that combined both of them together. Um, trentleness. Sounds a lot better than gruth. I am gruth. Okay, focus, Anthony. This is gentleness and truth, both of them together, which is going to combat, combat the harsh, um, lobbing of lies at people. Two verses for you. Ephesians 4, 2. Be completely humble and gentle. You'll notice a lot of overlap, by the way, in these categories as we go through it. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Colossians 4, 6. Let every word you speak be drenched with grace and tempered with truth and clarity. That's a good summary right there. That's the opposite of that abusiveness drenched with grace, tempered with truth and clarity. For then you will be prepared to give a respectful answer to anyone who asks about your faith. So really this is, rather than reversing moral and spiritual realities, this is confirming moral and spiritual realities and doing so with humility, that's our posture inside, and doing with honor, we're lifting up the people around us. A couple weekends ago when I had spoken at a youth retreat in Ohio, I just loved, I got to talk about what it meant to be image bearers of God and be able to give a moral and spiritual reality. You bear the image of God. Be lifted up. And then when we give our lives to Christ, you're the temple of God. You're the children of God. Be lifted up. There is an honor inherent in you, 
right? That, so that, that's this idea of gentleness of truth. We are truth tellers that act with honor from a place of humility. In contrast with treachery or being traitors is loyalty. Proverbs 3.3, 3, never let loyalty or steadfast love and kindness leave you. Tie them around your neck as a reminder. Write them deep within your heart. Psalm 133.1, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Dave, you wanted to start singing there, didn't you? Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in love. So I think in this contrast, the family of God and the church of God, faithfulness ought to be assumed. It's kind of the default position. I don't just mean faithfulness to God, but faithfulness to each other because we're in this together. It brings a steadiness. So like within a local church community, it, it becomes a safe place to invest ourselves because to really invest ourselves to become this this honest, humble person where we can say, this is who I am and let people see it and all that kind of stuff, it takes time. We don't, generally don't walk into a new place with a bunch of strangers and just let all our garbage out on the floor. It usually takes quite a bit of time. I mean, if you don't know me, you come to visit me, I'm cleaning up my house before you show up. If you know me really well, <laughs> you can show up. It's, it's cool, right? That takes time. I think the same thing happens in church, which is why this importance of loyalty just so that we can become a community of people who have had the time to genuinely invest in each other. And, and I want to be clear, there's no doubt. The Bible talks about times that fellowship has to break. There's serious reasons. But I think the default setting is that the people of God stick together. Two more. Uh, recklessness was one of the bad fruit. I think the opposite to that is prudence. Proverbs 16, 32, better a patient person than a warrior, better one with self-control than one who can take a city. Proverbs 25, 28, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Proverbs 14, 8, the wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways. The folly of fools is deception. So over and over again, the Bible talks about the importance of self-management, of thoughtful pro progress, of carefully constructing where we are going with our decision-making. Uh, when I was in Bible college, I once drove with someone who was remarkably reckless, remarkably reckless. I never drove with them again. That was not a safe vehicle or a safe experience. And it made me a little concerned because the person who did this, they were angry and they had a whole car full of people, then they put their lives at risk, right? It was reckless, reckless. Um, I, I'd like to get to my destination without chaos, right? This is the idea of the church. That's part of the, all the other things we've mentioned so far. This prudence is, okay, this is a good place. I'm not in the midst of reckless people. I'm in the midst of thoughtful, God-honoring, uh, God-surrendered people who will be careful with the decisions that they make. And then finally, let's contrast self-importance with self-awareness. So that self-importance was the smoke blinded. Um, self-awareness will simply be, I could see clearly. Couple verses, Lamentations 3.40, let us examine our ways and test them, and then let us return to the Lord. James 1, 22, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. 
Perhaps the idea is you had a mirror, but you were blinded by smoke and you couldn't see. Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I think there's something beautiful about someone who could take an honest self-assessment of themselves and not be ashamed of it, but can share it and just say, once again, this is who I am. But you'll notice going back to Lamentations, the motivation then is let us return to the Lord. We don't just stop there with honest self-assessment. Um, it is meant to move us toward Christ for when we see ourselves as we really are, we recognize our need for Christ. Good fruit comes from good roots. I just want to give a summary here. This is my last thought. Um, worship team, you can come on up. Uh, I just want to go through these, and just as we're thinking about them, I, I want us to remember even though Paul is warning Timothy how church could go badly, there is by implication what it looks like for church to flourish. And I want us to think about what it looks like to be a part of a church family that looks like this. We are humble, seeking to serve rather than be served. And the power of the Spirit and the path give us the hearts and hands of Christ-like servants. We honor those around us, valuing them above ourselves. And the power of the Spirit and the path, that's the path of righteousness, enable us to see the dignity and worth in all people and respond appropriately. We're gentle, not abusive. And the power of the Spirit and the path fills us with grace so that we do not break the bruised reeds all around us or scare away the sheep without a shepherd. We affirm reality, not distort it. And the power of the Spirit and the path of righteousness sets our love of truth on a hill to shine into the darkness. We're loyal, not pushing others away or leaving them to follow our bad roots or false loves. And the power of the Spirit and the path of righteousness builds radically different and remarkably broken people into the new humanity that shows the world how the love of Christ living in us covers a multitude of sins and flourishes in even the most challenging of places. We're patient, prudent, characterized by deliberate decision-making, and the power of the Spirit and the path of righteousness creates in and around us an oasis of stability and hope in a troubled and a hopeless world. And then we see ourselves honestly, and we use that mirror to motivate us to change and the power of the Spirit and the path of righteousness makes that mirror crystal clear so we can't escape the truth. And then works heart-changing, soul-cleansing miracles as we are transformed away from that image and into the image of Christ. And that's church. Grateful, Lord, uh, that you're a God who is kind enough to warn us and that you're a God who is gracious enough to show us the path of life and show us where good roots in Christ lead to these kind of fruits that adorn the gospel. Uh, oh, Lord, give us your heart and your mind. We need your spirit to empower us. We need your word to guide us. We need the cleansing blood of Christ to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we need the clarity to see the path that you have given us so that we can walk in it. May we do this for our good 
for your glory. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.